and how to balance development goals with citywide needs and local interests. Um, so I am Margot Jaffa, Regional Manager with Allsteel, um, and I am the chair of our Hornet um, Public Policy Committee. Um, and I will introduce the speakers. Uh, so moderating today um, will be Dan Kaplan. Uh, Dan Kaplan is a senior partner with FX Collaborative Architects. He serves in design and, and a leadership capacity for many of the firm's complex and award-winning projects and buildings. Dan is an urbanist architect and his passion is the crafting of compelling buildings and spaces that add up to great and enduring uh, neighborhoods. Our other speakers include uh, Basha Gerhardt, who is the Senior Vice President for Planning for the Real Estate Board of New York, where she oversees issues such as housing, land use, zoning, landmarks, community development, climate adaption and resiliency, and retail and streetscape conditions. Prior to joining Rebney in 2018, Basha served as the Manhattan Borough President uh, and Gail Brewer's Senior Land Use Advisor. Uh, also joining us today is Council Member Keith Powers. Keith represents New York City's Council District 4, spanning the east side of, of Manhattan and Midtown. In this time uh, in office, Council Member Powers has introduced and passed legislation to make it easier to run for office, prevent tenants from unlawful eviction, broaden sexual harassment protections, and protect small business. He also chairs the East, Town, East Midtown Governing Group, charged with oversight um, of improving public space and transportation in the area. Uh, also joining us today is Miriam Harris, who is the Executive Vice President of Trinity um, Place Holdings. In this role, she directs all aspects of the community's real estate business, including the development of Jolion Greenwich, uh, a 300,000 square foot mixed use luxury condominium, retail and elementary school projects in Lower Manhattan, as well as the acquisitions, sales, leasing and asset management of properties in the New York Tri-State area. A seasoned real estate executive, Miriam has over 25 years experience in the industry and prior to leading real estate for uh, uh, Trinity Partners, she served as the executive vice president and co-head of the Real Estate Transaction Services Group for the New York City Economic Development Corporation, where she negotiated some of the most complex transformational public-private land development deals executed under the Bloomberg administration, such as the Coronet Tech Campus and Essex Crossing. And now without uh, further ado, I will turn it over to Dan to begin the discussion. Thank you so much, Margo, and thank you everybody for joining us. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, I uh, wanna thank Cornette for uh, reaching out to us to set this up. And I really wanna start out by thanking my, my co-panelists here, um, all really stellar people, very busy, Count, council member Powers, thank you. Uh, Basha Gerhards, thank you so much. And Miriam Harris, thank you as always. Um, I'm just gonna tee it off really quickly and then get into the questions. Uh, if you have questions, put it in the chat. Um, and I think Margo will try to, to assimilate them. Uh, and, uh, but we'll, we will certainly leave time for Q&A at the end. So um, this year as everybody, it's no news to anybody that this year is uh, 
been a, a little bit crazy and nuts and it's and and, and the coming year is going to turn out to be i think one of the most pivotal in uh our city's uh history um we all know the challenges of the pandemic and and how hard it was to to families and our communities and our businesses and as we i think collectively as 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 design professionals and as people in in the in the real estate industry and and and, and others really begin the hard work of, of really repairing the, the social and economic damage of, of COVID-19. Um, I think we'll all have the realization that um, the pandemic really didn't cause a lot of the, of the ills, but really exacerbated the underlying ills. And so um, it's, it's an opportunity. Uh, I think the pandemic, of course, uh, really also demonstrated the resilience of, of our, our community and, and, and the city and its people. So this coming year, we will have a new mayor uh, with a fresh administration. Uh, council member powers will have probably uh, three quarters of his council be new, fresh faces, uh, eager to go. Um, we have in Washington, D.C., a new administration that seems more focused on urban policies and more supportive and um, are backing their policies up so far with money. Um, so at this juncture, um, how do we get the city we want as we as we really rework to improve it? You know, uh, so today. Um, we want to discuss, as, as, as Margot said, what are the opportunities and challenges of city building in, the, in this period? What are the big land use uh, and zoning initiatives? What are the barriers and what, what role does the government play? So before I get into the questions, I just want to also say that Cornet has a, a, an amazing constituency. You, you all are wonderful people. <laughs> and the, between design professionals, clients, corporations, furniture suppliers, contractors, and usually the dialogue in Cornet is what happens with inside the building. But as, as we all know, it's impossible to, to separate that from what happens outside the four walls of the building. So um, we need to get into those issues and to see how, how things we can, how, how we can make things better. So with that, I'll start off the questions and the dialogue and I'm going to first uh, direct uh, the question to um, Councilmember Power. Um, you know, in, in the in the things we can agree upon category, um, the amazing reimagining of of our streets and sidewalks and outdoor dining and culture has been one of the silver linings of of the pandemic. And uh, we want. We were I'm very curious to know uh, where do you see this going? Where do you see the open streets program going? Where do you is this whole thing a fad? Or do you see the five, 10 years from now, a visitor who hasn't been in the city uh, for a while come back and say, well, wow, you know, um, look, look, look how different it feels. Or, or maybe a visitor or even a, a, a you know, a, a real estate executive who's looking for, you know, in terms of location executive. How, how does the public realm, how do you see the public realm uh, Sure. Thank you for focusing on that. I, I think one of the we're going to really figure out uh, all the legacies fed from the federal level in terms of expansion of safety net down to the city level when it comes to open space and other things we've done uh, in, during the pandemic. We're going to figure out exactly how much of an expansion of government or programs this is, but we won't probably know that for a couple of years from now. I think 
this is pro open dining as an example, I think is probably here to stay, you know, is more adorable than some of the other things because it matches. It's just a perfect meshing and matching of what the public wants. I think generally, which is to be able to have more space and be outside a way to help businesses out. If you remember, if you recall, like businesses are as restaurants reopen and let's, let's say in a year from now, they basically double their footprint for the same price of the rent, at least for the time being. So it's a major boost to them, uh, you know, for some period of time. So I think that's likely here to stay, but we're already running into issues where as we think about the long-term uh, uh, a long-term program that we are hearing from neighbors and communities that are saying, well, wait a second, this has been a little disruptive to me. I don't love it. There's pockets of opposition. So I think we're going to have to figure exactly how to structure that out. But I do think that's here to stay. On open streets, I think there is a version of that will that will stay. But I will say, like, I think the open streets program has been great. But the one right across you from my house, as an example, cars still go down it sometimes. I mean, you have to do if you're going to do it, you have to do it. Like, you have to actually close the street down and make it a public space all the way. It can't be volunteer driven. It can't be, you know, you can't be able to sort of negotiate the uh, barriers. But I think you'll see a program like that that will stay. I think it makes sense in the areas like I represent Koreatown, like the main, like, like some of the main areas of like outdoor dining, I think would be good ones to shut down for, you know, non-essential traffic or traffic period and really make it dining and people. I think some of the other ones we see, we'll probably see a little bit of scaling back on some of the other ones, but I think outdoor dining and outdoor uh, open streets are going to be here to stay. And I think you're going to see the next mayor probably come in with some plan or program uh, around, you know, open space and parks and things like that, because they're starting to talk about that as part of the campaigns for mayor. That, that That's, that's really great. I mean, um, in addition to uh, what you said about, um, let's say neighbor, neighbor impact, um, you know, what are the other things you see as these things sort of go from sort of temporary pop-up to more of a permanent condition? You know, there, surely there's, you know, you brought up the question of, um, you know, doubling the footprint of a um, restaurant. Do you think there should be some sort of compensation or sharing or? or uh, so there's a couple there's a couple of challenges about their dining long term. One is, you know, permanent, like you're going to put these permanent structures there that um, are going to need to be removed at some point to do street cleaning and utility relocation or utility work and to get into the street. So I think there might be a version of that program that's more warm weather focused or something that, you know, creates opportunity to get into the streets as you really kind of need them. And also, I think you're going to see leases probably start reflecting, out, I, I would think, more, more good outdoor space. You know, corner spot is now worth a lot even more. So I think you might see a difference. I, I, you know, I'll let the real estate folks tell me if I'm wrong about that, but I think that might be the case. Um, and you're going to see, have to see, see some regulation around hours and things like that. The one thing I would add in, and then I'll shut up, is... I think that one of the good things about outdoor dining was that there was no real burdens to get into the program. They, they stood it up really quick. They mostly left. I mean, there was enforcement on certain parts, but they mostly left enforcement. They were pretty hands off about it and they got it up and running to get outdoor dining. Normally in, in, in the New York, in New York city, you have to go to the city council and get approved. You have to go through a whole Euler process. The mayor's office is proposing to, I think, repeal that now and to make outdoor dining less, like the sidewalk cafes and 
outdoor dining to streamline that, which is a good idea because it's silly to get a sidewalk cafe that you have to go through months of a process to do it, especially when we have this new program that is can get up and running really quick. So um, I think like bureau, you know, bureau, 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 ease might be something that we could try to, you know, learn a little bit uh, in this as well. That's such a great point, because I think one of the things that I think people really responded to and react to is just the inventiveness and the spontaneity of it and that that and the good energy around that. And that doesn't happen when you have to do, as you say, like an 18 month process to get a to get a sidewalk permit for. for <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. That's such a good, good point. Um, uh, you know, another, and I'll do, I'm going to direct this one toward, towards Basha. And I, I mean, another sort of surprising outcome of this whole situation has been, you know, all of a sudden, the, our, our building, our, our, our office building stock, right? And what, what's going on with that? And, and, you know, the resistance at some points or other to, you know, especially in Midtown East to, for conversions from, from uh, you know, uh, office to residential and, and so forth. Um, you know, and now there's legislation being proposed that will take, um, I don't know if folks saw it in the Times about a month ago of, of uh, I think it was Kim, uh, Kimmelman, who's the, uh, the um, critic, uh, commissioned somebody to reimagine some generic 1960s uh, Madison Avenue office building into something that looked like a Bushwick, you know, <laughs> a, a, a Bushwick vibe place. And is and and there's legislation out there that that actually can make that happen. So um, I would love to hear from you in terms of what your members are thinking about that and the likelihood and the pitfalls and the opportunities. And I'd love to 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 get some color on that. Thanks, Dan. I, how much time do we have, right? So let's 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 go big picture for a moment before we get into specifics. Um, what is the role conversion a convergence policy could play, and what's the value it can add to our city? Um, a convergence policy is not a quick fix that will transform the offices into. Um, I think at, at one point in the questions you had sent us, like a a hip Bushwick apartment. We're actually not looking to do this in Bushwick one. Uh, so so for the planners amongst us, you know the neighborhood names matter. We're not we're not looking to transfer neighborhoods. Neighborhoods should be unique and special. Uh, it is not based on the idea that Manhattan offices are just going to go away due to the pandemic. There is still a very vital place for office space in our central business districts and in Midtown. It's also not a new concept. It was done successfully in Lower Manhattan, and I'll speak to that a bit more in a moment. So conversions policy, if done well is an opportunity to think long-term about how to strengthen our central business districts into the 21st century with a dynamic 24-7 live-work-play environment. And an important part of that environment is going to be uh, both perception and reality in terms of quality of life, whether that's safety, um, effective and just law enforcement, compassion and effective care for New Yorkers experiencing homelessness. Uh, you know, some of those outdoor dining spaces have been fantastic, but they're also next to a trash compactor or the way our trash is collected on the streets or how do you get freight and deliveries in. These are all issues that need to get sorted out, but this is a good opportunity to have those kind of broader conversations. Uh, I think conversions is also an opportunity for us to continuing positioning New York City as 
as a global leader and making our central business districts more attractive to major commercial tenants. If you have active street life, if you have a variety of uses and users and, and, and people, that creates a better office environment as well. And, and I think for those of us who were in midtown office buildings and, and you went out and you saw the same type of activity, right? Like there's something that to be said for, for seeing something different when you walk outside the door, whether it's your home door or, or your office door. We also think it's a real opportunity to help address New York City's housing needs, which have existed for decades before the pandemic. So if this isn't a new concept and there's lessons to be learned, we know it was hugely successful in lower Manhattan after market challenges uh, coming into the 90s. It was based on smart long-term planning. It made the math work. This was really important in terms of both the public and private sectors collaborating and, and the use of an abatement program to help for the cost of these conversions. And we can still see positive results today. There's also lessons to be learned on, on what not to do, right? There's a, a lot of legitimate criticisms around 421 G and what that meant for stabilization and long-term affordability for some of the units that were created. So that brings us back to right now in this moment, what are the policies on the table? Um, you know, again, going to back to this idea, like office stock is not going away and commercial tenants still want it. Uh, we specifically suggested focusing on class B and C office space because um, we still believe there is high demand and we're seeing high demand for class A. A CBRE analysis found nearly 3 million square feet of commercial lease signings in quarter one, 2021. This is the best quarter of leasing since the start of the pandemic. Um, out of the nearly 3 million square feet of leasing in quarter one, more than 1.3 million took place in March alone. So that's making it the best month of leasing since the start of pandemic. So again, this isn't about a glut of office space. This is about how do we reposition the office space that could be used maybe in a better way or a different way. There's also a lot of really active commercial tenants um, in the market and we really see leasing activity improving. So if there's office space that we need to keep and office space that we can maybe use something different. On the office space, we can use something different. This is not a one-for-one a, a -one conversion on hotel rooms. Uh, transforming large floor plate office buildings is complicated and takes a lot of time and management of a wide array of moving parts. So does any of the legislation do this? And does any of the legislation make the math work? So Unfortunately, none of the proposals that are currently out there are, are perfect and really acknowledge all of these three components of making the math work, remembering that conversions are difficult and acknowledging that there's a certain universe of office space that isn't gonna convert. This isn't necessarily the big influx, it is an opportunity. So one of the budget proposals was from the governor himself, um, and this contemplated private and public sector involvement. It did not contemplate an abatement program. It addressed some of the zoning challenges that come from the conversions of these in terms of light and air standards, distance between windows, and some of more of like the technical pieces, including uh, density and floor area. You had another proposal that basically looked at the creation of a new set of uh, single room occupancy SROs. Now the city itself has moved away from that policy, but there's a lot in the housing world who think we should go back to making new SROs, but in a, in a better way, um, in a better, I want to say like a higher quality standard. And then there's a third proposal um, sponsored by Senator Gianaris that specifically only looked at hotels and office buildings really outside of the central business district. And remember our concept was we want 24 seven neighborhoods in the central business district and excludes the private sector. 
None of these proposals passed during the budget session. Um, they are still, I think, in some level of play and in consideration. And $100 million was set aside for a pilot. And again, I want to go back to this idea of the math working. $100 million will, will may purchase a single building, a unicorn of a building um, that could be transferred for 100% supportive housing by a nonprofit partner. Uh, and, I, and I wish that entity a lot of luck with that pot of money, given all the challenges I've outlined. That, that's really uh, great. And it it's, uh, pivots me just perfectly to, to Miriam. Um, you know, Miriam, you've worn two hats in your, your career so far, you know, on the public side and on the development side. Uh, and, um, you know, how do you see um incentives uh as part of like the package if we think about sort of three legs of the stool there's the quality of life issues in the public open space and maybe what Bosch was just saying about changing the zoning rules of the game a little bit to in this bureaucratic uh, um, ease uh that uh, the council member said you know it's the second leg of the stool is is there a real role here for for government in terms of incentives? You're on, you're on mute, yep. <laughs> of course that's gonna happen. <laughs> of, of, of course there is, and that's what Basha was speaking to, making the math work, and the math doesn't work now, uh, but I'm not optimistic that that will happen at all. So I, I'm very sort of realistic that there is no proposal to add incentives. <laughs> Um, as, as I think most of us know, you know, the Amazon project highlighted what's really hard for, for folks like me or maybe even Basha to swallow, uh, you know, folks in the economic and development and real estate field that currently in the conversation, there is no discussion or feeling that there's a distinction between as of right incentives and subsidy. And because of that, you know, we can't have a real conversation about the right number because there is no right number then. We're just giving money to people and that's not what we should be doing. Um, and since we're in that situation, you know, we are even in a place where 421A, once again, you know, in a very short amount of time is in play and might leave us at the, you know, affordable New York program for residential. And, um, Putting aside what the right amount of uh, incentive is, by redoing these incentives on very um, fast timelines for the real estate industry, it really, um, it freezes projects, it freezes planning, and, and we just, our process, which is already methodical in a good way, I would, I would argue, in terms of viewer and things like that, becomes even slower. It, you can't even do an as of right, which is considered a faster project. And when you're in a post-COVID world where we're trying to recover quickly, uh, we're not giving people the tools to do that. Um, so, you know, we also, you know, a lot of the proposals, you know, the $100 million for, the, for that one building, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a sense that the answer is always uh, direct subsidy. But that direct subsidy is desperately needed for deeply affordable projects. But we need, a, we need all kinds of housing. And we need those two things to work together. And we need to preserve that subsidy when we have it. And maybe we have it now because of stimulus and the stock market 
but we're not going to have it next year or the year after. I mean, that's sort of guaranteed. Um, we save that for the, de the, 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 the deeply affordable projects. Um, and then, you know, there's a discussion that, oh, maybe New York, New York, you know, COVID, the silver linings, it's more affordable now. Rents have gone down. I think we're seeing that that's a momentary blip. And the market is still very tight because we have so few housing units where people want to live here. I think um, I actually think next week will be will be in a moment in time where everyone starts coming back. Uh, we've been seeing it in the rental market, you know, the increase in, in absorption. I think we'll see it in, in the town and we'll surely see it in lower Manhattan with city workers coming back. And our, our market's going to get tight again. And, and we're not giving people the tools to create new housing units or, you know, new opportunities for people. Um, you know, long term, I, I think that the key is to make, if you are going to have incentives and they should be sized properly, I think the time period for them, the lifelines for them should be longer than they are now so that they can actually be implemented and truly be as of right. I also think that Basha mentioned it, you know, there were a lot of problems with 421G, but if you do look on it over a historical period, it's the reason that Lower Manhattan now is truly live work. It started it, it established it as a place where you could live. And now because of that, folks like Dan and I are building, you know, brand new residential units there um, that don't have funky layouts, <laughs> you know, um, so, that, so that people people can, you know, more people can live down there. And in that sense, Lower Manhattan might have uh, more stability over long term than the central CBD at this moment. Mary, and do while you define, I'm sorry, Mary, do you just want to define 421G for the for the uh, for the audience so that it's, it's clear? I think I think Basha can do it better than I can, but it was it it was part of that combination of zoning and tax incentives. It was the tax incentive part of uh, the Lower Manhattan Revitalization Plan, which was to take older office buildings and convert them to residential. Perfect. And it was the tax incentive component of it. Um, and I think it really, it really is what started the, the Renaissance downtown. And I, I, I do think that Class B and C office buildings, which um, we, you know, the city talked about this for so long, and 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 there's a whole rezoning in East Midtown to accommodate upgrading Class B and C office buildings. But we have to expand that, not just how to, you know, build new office buildings, but how to convert them, because I think that there will be less demand for office space of that type, as Basha noted. Class A coming back, we're seeing that people will come back, but maybe these other buildings are, are really gonna need that and they're gonna need the incentives to do it. And I think they're gonna need a longer time horizon. If I understand these proposals correctly, they're quite short. They're saying we have COVID, we have an emergency, people need help now. That's not how real estate works. Um, and that's not how creating stable neighborhoods really works either. That's, that's so great. I, I just wanna, a follow up on that uh, to the council member. You know, it, you your district is obviously uh, includes both Midtown, so this is obviously probably top of mind for you. And I would love to get your perspective on on a what uh, this whole conversion uh, situation, and b just uh, you know what Miriam was saying about about the incentives. Sure. Um, two things. I mean, two things. One is I, you know, I generally agree that we should be looking at, you know, creating more flexibility here in our building stock to be able to look at different uses. 
And we to do it, you know, we shouldn't, you know, just rush to do it. We have to do it very kind of carefully to balance the uses, recognizing that we where we are exactly today is not where we'll be in a couple of years with hotels still needed for tourism and, uh, you know, still going to hopefully have workers showing up to work and needing um, and I've been I'll say I've been encouraged by the fact that I represent East Midtown and we still see lots of projects that are coming through. We have some really big ones. And of course, want to get those projects done to sort of both stimulate the economy here, put people to work, but also create new modernized spaces in this area. One thing we have been looking at is that component of, you know, after work, what do people do? Because Midtown East particularly is predominantly a workers area. And then, you know, you have kind of like the east of Third Avenue area, sort of residential and you know other areas, but the, you can see right in the core of it is predominantly commercial and residential. We've been doing a lot to incentivize um, um, uh, uh, new development there. But we do, I, what we are actually looking at is trying to create more spaces in there that are like after-hour spaces. Obviously, that's good dining and stuff like that. But we're looking for ways to try to keep people around or make it a little more destination-driven outside of the work hours. And we've been kind of kicking around ideas how to do that, in addition to making an attractive place to actually work. Um, and on incentives, look, I think there's, an, I think like the best incentives are one that don't cost a lot of money and are ones where we do kind of create some flexibility to look at different uses here. I just want to, I would just always warn that like, you know, we don't want to over respond or overreact to this moment either. We do want to kind of think about what our long-term needs are here in the city, but housing is always a need. So if we're looking at supportive housing and, the, you know, we, so, you know, any opportunity to kind of create more and new modernized housing is always a, you know, always something we look, I look favorably on in terms of new uses. Yeah. I think that's a good opportunity to distinguish between direct subsidy dollars and an abatement yeah. program a lot. Like 421G is an abatement program. Affordable New York is an abatement program. This is about foregone tax revenue versus the state or the city government writing a check for however many dollars to, to, to give cash, right? Right. Cash to the, the developer or to the owner to, to do the public good. And, and I think a lot of times that gets confused in these, in these conversations or, 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 you know, kind of lumped together and they're very different in how they operate. And then to the council members point, right? Like there are certain guardrails that should and can be put in place. It is very, good for a legislative body to reevaluate these programs on a regular basis. And to Miriam's point, though, are we asking him to reevaluate on, on too short a time, time frame to really see proof positive of is the program parameters you set three years ago working? And I would argue three years is really not a long time, especially when we think about a development pipeline or, or as urban planners, right? Like three years, you set up yeah. a 40. So, you know, Somewhere between three and 40 sounds probably better, you know, sandbox for where we should be playing with these different programs. And how, how do we get there so that we can actually see, is this a good concept? Are we getting the, the public good back on these public dollars, whether it's an abatement or the direct subsidy? Yeah, and also avoiding, you know, the, the uh, cycle of this is really important. I mean, many of us are living right now through the 421A uh, sunset cycle and you know it, I've seen like three or four of these now in my career where it's like got to get that foundation in the ground and it sort of and it, and it creates these sort of artificial rushes you know to to in, in terms of the, of the market so interesting um you know 
Miriam sort of touched on it and I, I want to expand on it a little bit. Um, it's just the general uh, societal or, or city's um, culture of, of development and, and attitude around it. And, you know, we are not, and not just developed, but also just city civic improvement. How do you do things in the public realm? You know, obviously it's a, it's a, it's a boisterous, uh, contentious place to, to live and to work and to do anything. And there's a lot of competing interests, but it does seem in the last few years, things have gotten um, particularly um, hot in temperature. So, you know, uh, I guess my question is what, what's good about what we do in terms of uh, ULERP and land use and governance and what, what are some good examples of how, where things have succeeded and where, what's, what's gone off the rails, I mean, and, and why, and, and what, what, what can we do to, to, to correct? So I'll just do a, a round robin and then I'll start with the council member and we'll go through the sort of same council member, then Bosch and then Miriam. Sure, um, yeah, the tough question. I, I think that most of what we do in the land use process is disliked by most of the stakeholders and that might be an argument for why parts of it actually really work. It does put pressure on people to make decisions. It kind of creates pressure on uh, developers to, you know, come up with a project that gets closer to what folks want. Um, it's not perfect, and but the, but the replacement policies have not always also been perfect either. I do support what the council's been talking about a little bit, which is to have like a process a little bit outside of ULERP to talk about long-term planning, to look at what we need in terms of housing and infrastructure and things like that, like a more comprehensive process that at least set, sets up goals. And then you can do ULERPs and do other projects through that lens of whether it's kind of meeting what the need is. And I think, but I do have noticed, I think different people have different impressions of what that really needs for them doing something more comprehensive. But I think there is probably a role here for doing planning that's not one at a time but um but i but to the point of the year process i mean right now the kind of one of the big discussion points is the council members were in particular council members role in that process and whether they should be kind of the de defining actor in that process because normally we defer to the you know there's a lot of deference to the member for who represents that area on some of these large scale projects, I think we have to break that because we do need to do economic development in this city and we can't leave it all up to one person to make that decision for the city of New York. And also in some of these areas, we want to, we were talking this whole time and I think it's right, it's right to say like, we want areas outside of East Midtown. I love Midtown, I represent it, but it can't be the only economic hub of New York City. And so, you know, everybody deserves to live 15 minutes, 20 minutes, or a short subway ride from the job if there's an opportunity for that. So I would like us to look at, you know, ways to incentivize people to be able to work closer to their house, good transportation options, good opportunities. That comes with at the price of doing some ULARPs. And, um, and so it's not easy, but I think sometimes we are losing focus on the need to be an ever like I the one the only thing I'll say about it, New York is always, is more than other cities kind of constantly redefining itself mm -hmm. you know you don't see you go downtown Manhattan you do see a lot of pieces of our history there but it's not like we have a historic district downtown Manhattan we have built around it we've built a commercial hub and residential hub there where our sort of the history of our city sort of started it's because we, we we evolved and so we can't stop doing that. 
And I think we have in the last couple of years had a little bit of a mixed identity when it comes to housing and what we need and also how that plays out in the council when it comes to and, and jobs and everything else when it both and also how that plays out in real time. And I think that's development is the hardest part of being a council member. And but it's the most it's arguably one of the most important. Interesting. That, that, that's that's super interesting. Thank you. for that. I mean, what you're really talking about is the tension between the the whether it's in this sort of supra, you, you know, Euler planning you're talking about or the role of the entire council versus a single council member. It's, it's, the, it's the tension between the top down and the bottom up or the collective versus the individual district. Well, if, yeah, like if you're doing a real, you're doing a Euler right now, there's no really way to kind of get a measurement of what the need is in your area or maybe need is citywide. When it comes, oh, this plays out in every issue, homeless shelters to school seats to, you know, public transportation. There's no great measurements always. I mean, there are for sure, but you know, the, we don't always get when we do a Euler sort of a, 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 a be able to look at what are the needs and what are the stress points in this in this in your area, right. and so or in the city, and so we know we have a housing shortage. We know we have a need to create more better public transportation and all this stuff. And I think when we do the, the one-off ULERPs, developer has their particular pressures, the financing of the project, the constraints of the zoning, things like that. And we have our needs, but we don't have a great way to always kind of look at them outside of, the, outside of that process. So I think trying to create some better visibility into the needs of the city as we're doing those projects would be really helpful, I think. Basha, you wanna respond? Where does, okay, where to start? All right, so <laughs> ULER projects, uh, it's about 20% between the rezonings and individual products uh, projects, 20% of our housing construction. That means 80% as of right. I would be incredibly concerned if that ratio starts to flip in any way. And, and I think that's what starts tripping up the conversation when we start talking about comprehensive planning and what does it mean and what it could do. So there are very fair criticisms with the current process um, in terms of to, to the council member's point, right? Like there's this mismatch between neighborhood need and, and city need. And I think industry city was a perfect example of this where you started having council members say, hey, wait a minute, there's a city need that could be fulfilled by this project. And is this the type of decision? What's the threshold decision that really should defer to the council member. So the, the bill that the council member was referring to, the comprehensive planning legislation that's currently in the city council, there's a number of very positive things in there. Um, it says infrastructure services and land use planning should be coordinated, great. Uh, stakeholders at all levels of government should have input into the planning process, couldn't agree more. Uh, New York City should strive to advance public and land use policies that promote racial and economic equality, yes. Policymakers should make decisions based on facts and data. That would be fantastic. So very good things. But then we, we get to the, the meat of what they're proposing here, uh, an entirely new planning agency, an entirely new environmental review process. Um, it does not actually eliminate uh, discretionary council member deference. So this, this tension point is not actually addressed in this plan at all. And, and we believe because it does not address that tension point, it is doomed to fail in a lot of ways. And because it doesn't remove that individual deference or really address it in a way in terms of that citywide framework, we just think this introduces an additional layer of review for discretionary applications. It's just one more stage gate someone has to go through and it doesn't really guarantee or really 
and when I say guarantee, there, there should not be a guarantee that when you go through ULURP, you're going to get a yes or a no, right? The whole point of a ULURP is, is this project going to be made better through this process? Is this proposal going to be made better through community review and engagement? And how does this fit within the goals of the neighborhood and the, the greater city? And, and it's way it's structured right now, it's not clear you get through both the comprehensive planning process, one, because of the timetable it sets up, it sets up a, a 10 year cycle. And then going back to the earlier conversation, is that sufficient time to see things play out? Um, and it doesn't really reconcile those, ex those existing community driven plans. It doesn't reconcile other statutory strategic plans and it doesn't reconcile um, other legislation that looks at discrete challenges such as fair housing or um, racial impacts. So I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done but it's the right conversation we need to be having when we're talking about long-term recovery and resiliency for the city. And I just wanna, I'm gonna rebut for a second, but I do agree with Pasha on most of this. I agree on most of this. And I think there's, there's more gatekeeping that needs to be removed from that. And also potentially more lawsuits based on the comprehensive planning framework that it would lead to less stuff. So I, I agree with you on that. I just think that whether you like the bill or not, there needs to be some conversation around planning that does not happen with council members and communities involved. Because when we get to the actual projects, we have to be able to say to our, I, I, I'm saying it more kind of like from a pro-housing standpoint, which is we need to be able to, you know, uh, address a housing shortage and we need to be able to have conversations about what that looks like in the city right now and have a process that's not on a clock, you know, to be part of that conversation. So I, I agree yeah. with you on a lot of it. Yeah, I mean, for, for a city of our size, the amount of actual planning that happens is, is quite small when you compare around the world. Yeah. Um, Miriam, you've been involved in some pretty successful um, redevelopments in your and I'd love to get your perspective on things. Sure. I mean, I think, and I'm speaking personally, but personally through processes that processes I've seen, you know, whether it's a private applicant or the city is doing a ULURP, the ones that have been successful have been when they have sponsored um, throughout, way before the ULERP, a very in-depth um, public outreach program, but also one that in turn, that the council member and the community board has in turn given that group uh, representatives of the community to talk to, you know, not just a thousand public presentations, you know, when, when a developer or even the city sometimes says, we did a thousand conversations, we listened to 30,000 people. That's not what a successful ULERP is. Uh, when it's done well, and I, and I saw it done well, uh, you know, when I saw colleagues of mine working on it on that Seward Park project or in East Midtown, is when they gather a group of stakeholders together who understand all the complexity, who are community members, but also because of their volunteerism and experience in the community, understand the complexities of development. And honestly, those people, even without the tools of comprehensive planning, which would be great for them, sort of understand the conflict and the uh, interface between the local and the, and the citywide needs, and they help you hash it out. And I think you find in those instances that either the city, um, if they do it prior to a developer getting involved, or even with private applicants, when they're given the tools, they respond, and then the EULA process works better. Um, I don't think, I think the EULA process is not broken. I, I think that there are ways to execute on it better. And I think that's a key component of it. 
I know in uh, Stewart Park, for example, it was not just the community board who worked with EDC on the land use and planning of the master plan. It was a smaller group of key stakeholders that really the whole community could get on board that these people represented them. And they were very knowledgeable volunteers um, and their voices were heard and implemented. And, and, and that's that. And I think what you see at Essex Crossing right now represents that. Yeah, that, that's so interesting. I mean, I think you're, the theme really resonates with what was with Basha and, and the council member said about, you know, it's, it's the dialogue up front is what I think we're all miss, you know, that's missing sometimes in these contentious processes and, and the sort of, you know, the facts and, and the sort of background and, you know, paving the way that that's interesting. I mean, one of the things that that makes me, um, I've seen, I've been involved in ULERPs all through now all five boroughs and uh, sort of on a granular on the ground basis and the spectrum of, um, uh, let's say land use, um, uh, you know, uh, experience and insight and uh, uh, competency, let's say amongst those leaders uh, varies tremendously across the whole city. So Jamaica Queens versus you know, community board for on the west side of Manhattan are, are very different type of uh, uh, just exposures and histories. So I, I think they're. I, I totally, I, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I'm um, just another example. I, I I did a volunteer technical assistance program with um, the ULI. Yeah. And we went to the South Bronx and we did something related to the new potential soccer stadium. And it was sponsored, the community board asked for this support because they felt like they didn't have enough expert tools to have that early conversation that they knew they wanted to have because they felt they hadn't had it before. You know, Yankee Stadium was not what, they, that was not a process that they, they, they feel good about. It didn't work for them. Um, but they said, we need help and ULI brought technical assistance. That's all outside of ULR, that's not the city. I don't know if the city can help with that or needs to, but but that conversation really helps the stakeholders who matter um, have an active role, and which is vital for success. Right, and give them the resources for sure. I, I want to leave some time for Q and A. We have about ten minutes left, so if there if there's Margot or Carolyn or there there's questions, we'd love to get them from the audience. We have a couple, um, but um, while we're potentially getting more from the audience, um, do you want to uh, pose another question to the the panelists? Sure. Uh, so this this is the uh, this is the the easy one. <laughs> so give it, uh, we've gone through some. Actually, I have to say, in terms of dialogue and everything, we've we've covered some pretty some pretty good subjects. But one of the things in terms of of uh, this group of Cornet, you know, and, and the, the people on the phone or on the Zoom, I should say, uh, you know, given Cornet's like constituency and, and interests, or what are some of the ways that, you know, from our past, what are, what are some of the ways that they can get involved and what, what are some of the routes that they could have in terms of having impact as we pivot to this economic recovery and post-pandemic, and not just economic, uh, social recovery uh, time, so. Uh, well, one, as we have a big elections this year, you should definitely vote and make sure you kind of put your 
Mark, are on candidates that you think match your, you know, ideological bend or people you like to see governing the city that you're going to have mayor down to city council running this year. And I'm one of the few who's uh, returning. So most districts where you live are going to have an open seat, a big opportunity to talk about your community. Mayor's race being the biggest one because it's really about the future of the city here. Um, but I have folks, you know, join community boards, which are part of the planning process and, you know, get involved in their block associations or form association or, you know, there's new more ideological, you know, or issue related groups. So, you know, I there's always kind of an aspiration, I think, to be more part of civic life and also time is a, of the essence for everyone. But hopefully maybe we have a little, little time on our hands these days. Um, yeah, look, I think vote get get involved in the and start paying attention. There's a couple of weeks left till the election on June 22nd for the primary, which will probably decide the race. So, you know, certainly get yourself acquainted with the uh, with the mayoral candidates and your city council candidates and, and go out and vote. And that is the, the council member, as we were saying, is a big part of the equation when it comes to planning and land use. So that's a big one. Um, but I'll leave to others to add into that. And I would just say, yeah, get get acquainted with what ranked choice voting means. <laughs> get educated, right? So that's not. Go ahead, Boxer. No, I, I was going to say I, I couldn't agree more. The the number one thing you could do is is go vote for the June primaries. It's such a critical election for the future of our city. Like the the next mayor is going to be the one setting setting the policy goals, the interpretations, um, even. May or may not have a better relationship uh, with, with the governor or whoever that's going to be, right? Like there's a lot of things in play and, and we need someone who understands the math, right? And, and understands the interests. Like this group is a constituency and I think that gets lost. And I'd also say a lot of these elections traditionally, whether it's for a local council race or, or for the mayor, historically, it's, we're not talking about wide margins of, of winning here. Some of these seats are decided by dozens of people. And, and I think, again, the number one thing you can do is go vote. Uh, the second thing, attend a community board meeting. If, if none of you have attended in a personal capacity, whatever your passion is outside of, of your work, that is a good place to, to explore. And, and I think one of the things that always comes up is, um, you know, a number of elected officials refuse donations from, from the industry or from the real estate. And, and I always bristle at that a bit because I'm not just my job and, and neither of any are you, right? Where our families, where our faith, where our communities, where our neighborhoods, where whatever drives you to get up in the morning, whether it's walking along the river and an open space or the design and voting is the way that you make your constituency and your voice heard. That's great. Miriam, do you want to add anything? I would only say that the, what just happened with the census, if nothing else, wakes, would surely wake up, me, wake, woke me up <laughs> for sure. What was it? 89 people decided? 89. 89. Yeah. So for people who don't know, 89, we lost a congressional seat by 89 vote, not votes, but I guess census measurement uh, population. Yeah. So there was a great question, um, which I think is is really interesting. And, it's a, and it was from, I don't know, it's uh, what is 
What are the potential fears that you have as we head towards the new normal? Um, which I oh, oh. know is cool. You know, what, 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 what are the, what could happen? Yeah. I think my fear is twofold. One is that we, you know, not the basics of public health, people don't get enough vaccinations and we see another surge or wave or variants or something like that. And we rush to go back to normal and we find out that that was a mistake. Um, and that's a mistake because we have vaccines and people need to get, don't get them. And that's a, and second is, I think this is an opportunity to be creative and, and, re, and kind of reimagine the city a bit to break things that are broke, to really break things that are broken and fix them. And that there might not be the political will at times to do that or the creativity to do that. And I think the mayor's race happening now is maybe only, you know, fortunate in the sense that we can think about the city as what we need exactly at this moment versus this sort of hap, you know, so it's happening at the end of one mayor administration, but we have a new one coming in and we can address the new normal maybe a little bit. But, you know, I think as we're talking about voting, you know, what I'm looking for, I think others are too, is like a little creativity and, and ideas for how to sort of do, you know, how to rebuild the city or reconstruct the city. And I think my fear would be where, you know, breaking the status quo is quite tough in the city and we need to, um, I'm ready to build some political work on that, but I think we need to have a little political will to do that. Great. That's great. Like take advantage of the loosening up of things to really not, not lose that, that new spirit, right? Yeah, I think it's right. Asha? Yeah. Mindy, William, well, I'll give the, the speakers an opportunity to, to answer that question as well, but we have a couple other questions too. Okay. Anybody else want to add to that answer? No, normally I say I don't prescribe to feelings, um, I prescribe to facts, but, you know, I, I think that the current concern is that we're going to have leadership that gets kind of bogged down into the, the rhetoric and, and we're not using this as an opportunity to reset, not just how we build or how we design and, and how we interact, but, but how we plan and how do we set policy and are we going to see leadership there and, and creativity there? And that's certainly the, the hope. I want to turn the sphere to hope, right? That's my hope. I think that's the, the hope for many of us on the call that, you know, the value of the design professionals and the industry will be seen and will be seen as a partner to solve a lot of the problems that the pandemic really exasperated. Great. Um, thank you. Um, Mindy Williams had a question. She said, um, how will expanded outdoor dining affect residential real estate prices parking for local residents, safety measures for traffic, uh, and I added in trash disposal. <laughs> uh, Basha, you want to take the first part? I can maybe talk about the, the more of the quality of life stuff. The real I actually defer to Miriam on a real oh, yeah, yeah. Fair, Miriam, yeah. <laughs> Why? Because I parked my car on the street? <laughs> <laughs> this, I mean, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't, I think you, you made the point that for retail, it'll, it'll sort of re reset what's valuable. I, I mean, yes, corners were always valuable, but if you have more outdoor seating, you're going to get more rent. So I think those values will definitely go up. I, I don't know what, I don't think it'll have much impact on residential. That's not something that I would, I would really contemplate. <laughs> I, 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 
Okay, Basha, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, I was just gonna say, right, like if we if we get the central business district we're, we're dreaming of, right, where, there, where, where conversions have occurred and, and you're creating new um, markets for residential, right? They're, they're, what are the impacts gonna be on the broader basis? Again, we don't even have a path forward for those conversions to occur. So it's, it's hard to say what's gonna happen to pricing. Um, I, I think I would defer to the council member as well for like parking and safety measures. I think we've all spoken to like, these are the exact things that need to get sorted out if this is going to be long-term programming for our streets. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we, we have to just figure out like the months, the hours, how to handle all that stuff. And we haven't done that yet. And that's just why I think we, you know, we are thinking and talking about a permanent outdoor dining program, but end of the summer, we're going to have to, by the end of summer, I think probably have to come up with a real idea this looks like. And you know, I do see a world where we do, you know, I don't know, April to September or something like that, when it's really prime time to be outside and leave the rest of the months to do construction and uh, stuff like that, or, you know, or utilities or cleaning and all that. But I will say, like, I think you're going to see a lot of stress, like outdoor dining is going to become a feature that's expectedly part of the restaurant and they're going to pay rents on it. And when you have to do things like closing it down because you're doing a new construction next door or something like that, like that's going to create a real stress from the restaurants on how to deal with that. But, um, but I think, you know, we'll, we'll have to deal with a little bit that in real time, but um, yeah, there's going to, we have to sort out how to do all that issues and we haven't done that yet. And I think that's going to have to happen in the summertime to sort those details out. Yeah. I mean, more practically, it's like, what do you do in, in a storm event, right? Like right. this theme of climate change, right? Like our storms are more severe. You know, growing up, it used to be, it would snow very frequently, but it was like three to six inches. Now it's like, you know, we're going to dump 18 inches on the city and good luck cleaning it up. So I, I think those are the types of things we have to think through. And on the even in the nicer weather, what happens when it rains and it's raining very hard and, and what does our street infrastructure look like and what happens to those spaces? So it's, Again, this is a good inflection point for how we're going to sort through all of this. And hopefully we'll have, you know, the congestion pricing will have been enacted. And also as, you know, we're going to return hopefully back to some new normal, but that's going to have also an overlay in terms of perhaps there's less vehicles on the streets. And so there might be a loosening up there. That, that brings us to our, to our one o'clock Oh. Yes. Do, do you, can we go over a, few, a couple more minutes? Is that okay with, with the speakers? And then um, the, you know, audience can, can keep on or, or drop off. I actually have to leave and I want to say thank you so much, but I hope that others can stay. And it was really great to be with this organization. Thank you so much. Thank you, Miriam. It was thank great you. having you. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I have to jump as well. I'm sorry, guys. Sorry. I know what I want to talk with my deadline here. Yeah. Well, well, we will wrap then. Thank yeah. you so much to all of our speakers. This was a wonderful conversation, very informative. Um, so thank you for, for leading us in that. And thank you to all of our attendees today. Um, hope you enjoyed the panel and see you all uh, on another virtual presentation soon. Thank, thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank, thank, you. thank you very much. I guess. Thank you.